up? In case you didn't know, this is Wooden Teeth. Hopefully you didn't arrive here by accident. Welcome. My name's Jake Williams. Today on the pod, we are speaking with Ari Freilich. He is staff attorney and California Legislative Affairs Director for the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. The Giffords Center was founded by Gabby Giffords, and you may recall that she was involved in a tragic incident back in 2011 when she was a member of Congress. She was shot along with 18 others in a supermarket parking lot in Tucson during a constituent event. She went on to become an advocate for common sense gun reform. And this latest incarnation of the Giffords Law Center actually came as a result uh, of a merger uh, with a California-based organization. And we'll get into that when we get uh, into the interview with Ari. I spend most of the time with Ari talking about what steps we can take at the state level to reduce gun violence, but I also ask him some big, troubling, hard to answer questions about significant challenges we face on guns and suicide today. So without further ado, Ari Freilich. of the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, Jake. It's great to join you. So I think most people are familiar with the tragic 2011 incident in which Representative Gabby Giffords and 18 others were shot in the supermarket parking lot in Tucson, which eventually led Giffords to create Americans for Responsible Solutions. But I suspect most people are less familiar with how the current iteration of that organization the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, came together. Can you help fill in the blanks there? Yeah, my organization was actually originally founded back in 1993 um, by uh, folks who were uh, who lost someone or were deeply affected by a mass shooting in San Francisco. Um, they came together and started what was originally a, um, a small local nonprofit that sought to bring legal expertise to bear as a think tank for the, for the gun violence prevention movement and um, started making some real headway and progress in enacting gun safety legislation in the state of California. Um, and they've been at it for 25 years, grew to a national organization. Um, we worked really closely with Gabby Gifford's organization and um, Americans for Responsible Solutions. And then we quickly joined up, joined teams and officially merged uh, just a few years ago. And so now we're Gifford's Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. So we've, uh, we've been an organization on the ground working in this issue for more than two and a half decades, um, but we're now led by former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. And how long have you been involved and what is it that you do? So I'm a staff attorney at Giffords Law Center. I've been here for about four years. Um, we do a lot. We do. Uh, I focus mostly on our legislative advocacy. Um, so working in um, most states in this country, um, trying to enact uh, gun violence prevention legislation that both regulates firearm access and commerce and markets, but also tries to invest in violence intervention strategies. Um, and we also uh, do a lot of research and publishing regarding reports um, to try to educate the public and stakeholders about um, the effects that uh, our policy choices regarding firearms have in this country. So uh, from suicide rates to uh, public health impacts in urban, poor, minority communities. So we, we work in a, in a wide variety of areas, um, but I focus on our legislative advocacy and report publication work. So you're an advocate um, as well as an attorney, is that correct? That's right. And so since you're an attorney 
And since you work, you specialize um, in this area of uh, guns, can you provide me and everybody listening with the most basic of primers, if you will, on how we got in the Second Amendment from a well-regulated militia in the era of muskets to what is now in modern day kind of an assault rifle free-for-all? How, how did that happen? That's a great question. Um, and a lot of folks don't know this. Um, until 2008, um, the prevailing interpretation of the Second Amendment um, in essentially nearly every court in the country, every state, uh, every, every part of this country, um, was that the Second Amendment protected the right of states to have essentially militias or essentially the early form of the National Guard, the state's guards, uh, to, to be armed. And that was considered um, and interpreted to be a defense against the federal government disarming the state militias and the state National Guard. Um, a five to four decision by the Supreme Court in 2008 um, radically changed that in many ways um, by finding for the first time really that that constitutional right applied to individuals. Um, now, there are really important limitations on what the Supreme Court has said that means. Um, and I, I think it's important that we bear that in mind. So far, Supreme Court precedents uh, flowing out of that 2008 court decision um, have said that though there is an individual right to bear arms, it is limited. Um, it doesn't mean that every person can have every type of gun. Um, and it specifically doesn't prevent states and local governments and the federal government from enacting uh, common sense and longstanding restrictions on the sale of weaponry, the type of weaponry that are available, um, licensing requirements, um, dealer regulations. Um, so more than 90% of the gun laws that have been challenged uh, since that 2008 Supreme Court decision have been upheld by the courts. So though it radically transformed the the standard that courts are applying and looking at when evaluating these kind of regulations, um, most gun laws have still survived. Um, there's a lot of alarm and concern now that the court has swung further to the right with the appointment of Justice Kavanaugh um, that they may that they may seek to chip away at uh, at, at more guns common sense gun safety regulation. Um, but for now, the vast majority of what we think of as gun safety reforms and laws have been upheld by the courts. So, operating under this new set of parameters since 08, what are the some of the what are some of the things that you've um, successfully been able to do um, with your organization to enforce some common sense restrictions on guns in a way that supports public health? So there's a wide variety of reforms. I think if we want, we want to really back up, because actually I think a lot of people uh, actually don't even know where, what our gun laws are and more likely or more often are not. Um, in most parts of this country, um, you know, independent of the Supreme Court and the Second Amendment, what they say uh, you can or cannot do, most parts of this country just don't have any laws in this area, essentially. Um, in most parts of this country, unless you're buying a gun from a licensed dealer, um, you can go to a garage sale, um, answer an online classified ad, uh, meet at a gun show, and buy any almost any type of weapon. So assault weapons, semi-automatic weapons with very large capacity magazines. Um, unlimited quantities with no background check, no sale record, uh, no questions asked. Uh, you can have unlimited quantities of ammunition, a lethal product delivered to your door, like you're ordering a pizza or an Amazon package. Um, and many states um, 
have really, really small restrictions on, on who can actually legally acquire a gun. Um, so people with a, a conviction for a violent hate crime in most, in most parts of this country could still legally pass that background check, even in the instances where it's required um, to get any type of weapon. Um, there are some laws. Uh, federal, the federal uh, government, federal law since the 90s has required that you do pass a background check if you're buying a gun from a licensed gun dealer. So what we think of as a, a, usually a brick and mortar store, a gun shop, a Walmart. Um, there are some restrictions that we've had since the 90s on, on who can pass a background check there to get guns, including people with a serious history of domestic violence or abuse, um, people with uh, serious histories of mental uh, incapacitation um, or felony crimes. Um, our organization is focused on, on, on spreading those, particularly at the state level, um, passing laws in the last decade or so regarding to, to expand which states actually do require background checks on all gun sales, restricting individuals' capacity to buy the most highly lethal forms of weaponry, um, adding new categories of people that uh, couldn't pass a background check because they have significant histories of, of violence and uh, reckless behavior. So that's people that have, for instance, um, convictions for hate crimes, convictions, um, and active histories for domestic violence. Um, we've also a new policy area that uh, California first enacted uh, just in 2014 and eight states enacted just last year alone. Um, it's called the Extreme Risk Protection Order. And that's a tool for family members, household members, law enforcement officers to file sworn petitions under oath with a court, um, essentially to see something and say something when someone close to them, when they have personal knowledge that someone has shown real signs, real warning signs of violence. And that gives them a tool to present that evidence to a judge and authorize the judge to issue a temporary order uh, removing firearms from that emergency situation. Yeah, I believe this is similar to um, a so-called red flag law that's been discussed here in this state in Colorado, um, which uh, I believe will be introduced in our state legislative session this year in which um, it would uh, allow for the ability of a judge when presented with evidence to remove firearms from a person who is deemed to be uh, a danger to him or herself or others. Is that is that a similar type of uh, legislation that you're referencing? Yeah, it's the same type of policy, and it I think it responds to the situation we've seen pretty tragically in in so many of the high profile mass shootings in recent years, uh, where, for instance, last year in the Parkland, Florida shooting, um, you know, someone that had been the subject of dozens of 911 calls was known to law enforcement to be a real danger um, was. Um, prohibited from carrying a backpack on school property because there was his school officials were so worried that he was going to carry weapons in that backpack. Um, that person was still able to go out and buy assault weapons, pass a background check because he was buying from a gun store and buy assault weapons that he used to uh, commit mass murder. Um, this would create a tool for local law enforcement and, um, and those closest to that person struggling in crisis uh, to go into a court in emergency situations and, and make sure the firearms are removed. Yeah, I can share that um, we had an unfortunate experience here in the very building I'm sitting in right now um, in Denver in 2016. We had a situation in which um, a man um, entered the building. Uh, this man was um, the estranged husband of uh, a woman who was working in the building who 
entered and uh, murdered her um, here with a handgun and then killed himself. And it turned out that in the uh, days and weeks previous to the incident, um, he had had interactions with law enforcement. Um, he had threatened suicide by, by cop. He had uh, been um, committed to um, inpatient psychiatric care. And despite all these things, there would have been nothing that law enforcement could have done to take away the weapon that he eventually used to murder um, his wife and himself. And so I can just attest to the fact this isn't a solution in search of a problem. This is a measure, I believe, that can actually save people's lives. Yeah, that's a, I think that's, that story, that example, is, is exactly the type of situation where this law is needed. Yeah, I think in, in that instance and in many other instances, it's a, there's a case of, of murder and suicide. And I think a lot of attention is um, understandably paid to mass shootings but I also think that, that suicide um, as an issue of gun violence is perhaps underappreciated, especially given that uh, suicide claims more, suicide by gun specifically claims more lives than murders do. And what else can we do? Is there anything else we can do specifically targeted to suicide prevention on guns uh, from a public policy perspective? Yeah, and let me just back up and talk about. Uh some of the statistics that explain why some of these interventions work for firearm suicide, because I didn't know them until I started working on this issue. And actually in my previous life, I was working with veterans, um, on veteran suicide policy, um, working with veteran clients that had been, um, punished in the military and punished later in terms of benefits because they had attempted suicide on duty. Um, and so to show that these people shouldn't be punished, that they weren't, um, you know, up to no good that they were really struggling with mental illness. What we did was we looked at who had attempted suicide and survived in their units and who had attempted suicide and died. They had similar service level, you know, ser similar service histories, combat histories. Um, you know, there wasn't, um, really what, what stood out is that those who survived didn't use guns to attempt suicide. Those that died by suicide had used guns. Um, and that's borne out in statistics overall. Um, People may be surprised by this, but the vast majority of people who attempt suicide in this country actually survive that attempt or act to save their own life before it's too late. Um, but those who use a gun rarely get that second chance. Um, and that explains why guns are used in about 5 to 6% of suicide attempts in the U.S., um, but account for more than half of suicide deaths. So when we're talking about the population that's most likely to attempt suicide, that actually looks really different from the population that's most likely to, to die by suicide. And that, that latter population that's most likely to die um, is disproportionately male gun owners um, in, driven by those factors in rural communities. So I think the single biggest thing we can do is actually to educate the public to dispel the myths about this, this link between firearm access, suicide, and, and our ability, our capacity to actually save lives from suicide. Because you know, I think the most damaging, dangerous myth is that people who attempt suicide have, are determined to die, that they're just going to keep attempting using whatever method um, until they do die. And that, that isn't true. Um, though people who have attempted suicide are obviously at higher risk for attempting again, most people who attempt suicide don't attempt again. The vast majority don't die by suicide. Um, so what we need to do first and foremost is educate the public that suicide is preventable. 
Um, and it's really closely linked. Suicide risk is really closely linked with a person's ability to immediately access and, and obtain the most lethal uh, means of suicide, which is a firearm. And once we educate the public and stakeholders about that, then we can start crafting meaningful public policy interventions ranging from waiting periods that help prevent impulsive suicide, suicidal driven uh, firearm purchases, background check laws that ensure that someone that has um, recently been, you know, involuntarily hospitalized because they are a significant danger to their own life due to suicidal urges, that they can't just go out across the street and buy a gun the second they're released from that hospital. Um, we can have extreme risk protection orders so that a family member who knows a, a, mem a member of their household is um, really, really exhibiting significant warning signs of suicidality and wants to go buy a weapon would actually have uh, tools to go into a court and ensure that that person would temporarily be blocked from passing a background check. There's also interventions that we've seen uh, that have been really highly successful in the medical community. Um, and these can sound complicated, but what they really boil down to is physicians and mental health professionals um, having the competency and the legal right, which is sometimes under threat, uh, to counsel their patients about the risk of firearms in their home if they're exhibiting warning signs of suicidality. This is probably uh, too big and unanswerable of a question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And that is, you know, we've seen record highs in uh, the suicide rate in the United States of late. And my, my basic question is why? You know, I, I know that people have had access to this uh, means of lethality for a while. I mean, it's, 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 it isn't new that you can go out and buy a handgun with relative ease. So it can't just be access to the means, the most lethal means uh, to kill yourself. There's got to be other reasons. Why is it that more Americans are killing themselves than ever. You know, I think that really answering that question is, <laughs> um, is, is, is complex and complicated. I think it's probably driven by, you know, factors that kind of have been affecting us, you know, in, in many, many ways that have been driving more and more Americans to use opioids. Um, I think it's probably not really unrelated to, um, you know, a sense of isolation and disconnect that a lot of people can feel. And, um, you know, we've seen suicide rates going up particularly high, uh, particularly fast among middle-aged white Americans. Um, it's a complex matter. And I don't think that we, I don't think that we as a country or, or even the public health community really knows exactly what's driving it. I think the, the real answer is it's a lot of things. What we do know is that increases recent increases have been driven largely by firearm suicides compared to non-firearm suicides um, that's actually the same we've seen recent spikes in in murders as well and those have been driven by by increases in in firearm homicides as opposed to non-firearm homicides um, so some data for you in that is just over the last three years of data that's from 2014 to 2016 from the cdc gun suicides rose six percent non-gun suicides by one percent for murder rates, uh, gun murder rates were up 30%, non-gun murder rates were flat. So it, we need to look at that. I think there's a lot of factors that may drive people to attempt suicide more often, a lot of factors that may drive people to, um, you know, to want to 
commit violent injury on another person. Um, we need to have a discussion about why in those, in both those sort of circumstances in recent years, more and more people are turning to guns in, the, in those moments of crisis. So we now have more guns than people in the U.S. Uh, there are about uh, 400 million firearms out there. And so given the incredible supply of guns already distributed among the population, how much can common sense regulation of their purchase now really do? You know, it's a good question. And you're right that that will always be a factor. Um, we have 400 million of these products out there. Uh, but there's, that is, and, and so as you, as you know, like this will continue to be a problem that plagues a lot of America. It's just, a we, it's a problem that other countries don't have, but there's a lot we can do within that. For instance, ammunition purchases are entirely unregulated. In most of this country, um, that's a product that people need to continuously buy more often to, if, to use the firearms that are out there. Some states have started passing laws requiring background checks for ammunition, for instance, regulating ammunition sellers, bringing some accountability and responsibility to this market. Um, we can pass more restrictions on how guns are sold and transferred. There's a lot out there already, um, but in states that have permitting requirements, for instance, they've seen gun violence go down. Um, in states that make it harder to pass a background check to acquire one of those weapons, we see that um, guns are less likely to fall into the hands of a domestic abuser, for instance. Um, we also need to have a conversation, though, about not just the regulating the supply of weapons, but also investing our public dollars in, in programs and strategies that reduce the likelihood that people will want to use guns for violence and for suicide. Um, so it's, it's looking at this approach both from a, a supply and demand, if you will, um, the supply of weapons um, and also the, the demand for uh, not just people purchasing them, but the demand for using them for violence, um, both against themselves or others. And we've seen that programs that are targeted at the highest risk populations um, that seek to really, in, in, in a meaningful way, identify um, the highest risk population and connect them with needed services, needed interventions. Um, they've had some really uh, promising and effective results. Uh, what our country has not done uh, effectively enough. And what I think the gun violence prevention movement has not until recently done effectively enough um, is make this a part of the gun violence prevention conversation um, and make lawmakers uh, prioritize funding for those programs. Do you think a, a national gun buyback program similar to what we've seen in Australia would ever work here in the U.S.? You know, I, I, I think we're a different population with a different we simply have a lot more guns. Um, that's not to say that more limited buybacks could not have some impacts. I think um, in, in terms of highly lethal weaponry, the ability of the population to, uh, to access the most highly lethal forms of, of weaponry, which have become much more lethal in the last few decades, um, that could have a real impact on mass shootings um, and the ability of, 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 of you know, people who intend to perpetrate violence to do so on a mass scale. Um, I think that that's also driven law enforcement in many communities to essentially engage in an arms race um, and find more highly lethal weaponry themselves. Um, so to, to answer your question, I think with regarding specific classes of weapons, um, there may be more impact on specific types of violence. 
Um, but the vast majority of, kind of what we think of as day-to-day violence in this country, the gun violence that doesn't necessarily make headlines, but, um, you know, has affected more than a million Americans last decade, um, leading them to be killed or or hospitalized uh, for gunshot wounds. Um, I, I think we may be up beyond in some ways what Australia was able to accomplish um, through their gun violence prevention efforts. Um, that's not to say we shouldn't pursue and learn from them and, and pursue some 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 policies that make it less likely that people would be, gain access to the most lethal forms of weaponry. Um, but I do think that we are dealing with a different situation. I'm going to continue with the uh, big, tough, potentially unanswerable questions. All right. Uh, why, why do you think that nobody seems to talk about the repeal or significant constitutional modification of the Second Amendment? I mean, is it just because of the um, perceived lack of viability? Like, why isn't that part of the debate? I think there's two reasons. One is simple and it's political. I think, um, you know, the vast majority of Americans support um, doing more to protect the population from guns. Um, we saw that in the last election. Polling consistently bears that out. With vast, you know, more than 90% of Americans, vast majority of Republicans and gun owners wanting more gun background checks, et cetera. Um, but I do think that the gun lobby has been very successful in, uh, in, in, in convincing um, the vast majority of Americans that this is an individual right to some extent that the ability for law abiding responsible people to go out and buy firearms and have one in their home for self-defense is a core part of the constitution. I think that has become a part of the American, uh, mainstream. And so I think the, the first answer is political. The second answer though, is that that really hasn't been necessary as, um, so as, as I mentioned, since 2008, more than 90% of, of gun laws challenged by the NRA and the gun industry have uh, been upheld by the courts. Um, many states are are failing to do more, not because the Second Amendment prevents them from doing so, but because there's not leadership in place making it happen. Um, you know, background checks, things that are really um, explicitly contemplated by that Supreme Court decision I mentioned from 2008 that would that would uh, absolutely survive legal challenge and have um, haven't been pursued for lack of leadership, political leadership, not because the Second Amendment is a constitutional cha- uh, obstacle to them. Um, really, uh, you know, the Second Amendment has really only been interpreted to strike down um, bans on possession in the home of the most common forms of weaponry um, and kind of de facto other 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 policy goals and, and laws that are essentially de facto bans on people's ability to own firearms for self-defense in their home um, if they have really no meaningful history of violence or irresponsible behavior. We've had a lot of high profile, tragic mass shootings in recent years. And I think with every one, um, people have um, speculated about the existence of some sort of tipping point. And, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of people thought the tipping point may have come with Sandy Hook, but at least in the immediate aftermath of that, tragedy, um, th- there was no significant shift um, in federal policy, at least. Um, when it came to Parkland, you know, there, there did seem to be some uh, movement at the state level with that state's, uh, Florida's Republican governor. My question for you is, where do you think we're at on the arc of this issue? Have we turned a corner politically? Have we not turned a corner? Or, you know, what, 
would you think it would take for some sort of tipping point if one is needed to make more progress on the issue? So the last time, you know, my first, I have a few responses. And the first one is look at the politics of the issue. Um, the last time the Democratic Party had unified control of the federal government, um, they did not pass um, or prioritize gun safety legislation. That would not be the case today. Um, so that was in, you know, when for President Obama first came into office um, for the first year or so of his term, when uh, Democrats had 60 votes in the Senate, um, there were, you know, this was considered um, in some ways just not a priority. Um, since then, unfortunately, this remains um, somewhat of a partisan issue. Um, and within the Democratic Party, there has been a, a sea change in that it is now one of the leading issues. Um, H.R. 8 was one of the first bills introduced um, in Congress this year after the Democratic Party took the House of Representatives. Um, a lot, we saw a lot of candidates campaign on this in districts that President Trump won just two years ago. Um, so a sea change now, if the Democratic Party had unified control of government, um, I, I think you would see this passed um, very, very quickly. Um, you'd see background checks passed. You'd see prohibitions on hate crime offenders being able to pass a background check to buy a gun. Um, you may see some restrictions on the most highly lethal forms of weaponry, including bump stocks that uh, allow a person to convert a semi-automatic rifle to a gun that fires nine rounds per second and were used in the Vegas shooting last year. Um, the other answer um, is that I think we see part of it is generational. Um, young voters last year consistently cited gun violence as one of their um, top voting issues. Um, students mentioned it's one of their top concerns about is there safety in the schools. I also think we need to have a broader conversation though that's not just mass shootings. And I think that is starting to, uh, that is starting to and in the process of filtering through the, the broader public. Um, and that takes many forms. It's firearm suicides, the fact that we lose tens of thousands of, you know, our neighbors, our family members every year to preventable um, self-injury. And it's because people in crisis have immediate access to the most highly lethal forms of suicide. Um, and I also think mass shootings focus the public attention on, on how, you know, in some ways absurd, uh, tragically absurd it is that we allow people with such a a known history of irresponsible violent behavior to acquire the most lethal forms of weaponry. But, um, you know, this, the everyday violence in, in this country, um, imposes enormously disproportional impact on poor minority communities. And, and I think that fact, um, is part of a broader conversation about racial justice and, uh, public health in our cities and among the poor, um, the fam, you know, the family members of, the parents of a white young white man in this country are most likely to lose their son um, to, to premature death to drug overdose, um, accidental injury like or accidental injury like car accidents. The parents of an African American young man are, are most likely to lose their son to murder. Um, in fact, murder kills as many young black men in this country as every other factor combined every cancer every illness every accident every act of god or human combined um half of all young black men who who die between the ages of up to 15 and 34 are murdered um, and almost all of them with a gun so the, the conversation that needs to happen you know mass shootings have really i think 
the increasingly lethal and intolerable state of this mass violence has, has focused a lot of the public attention on, on how absurd our laws are that we make these weapons available to these people. Um, and the conversation that I think is emerging still and needs to still happen is both regarding suicide, the, you know, the ways that violence impacts us um, every day when those mass shootings aren't occurring in our communities. Um, and that's through enormous and increasing rates of suicide and um, absolutely shocking and intolerable rates of violence in our inner cities. I would say that the gun rights movement is perhaps the only movement in America for whom it seems to be culturally acceptable to threaten physical harm or murder if somebody nonviolently espouses a policy view contrary to theirs. I mean, beginning, for example, with Charlton Heston's From My Cold Dead Hands to, um, you know, umpteen threats per second uh, on the internet. Uh, and so my question is, have you ever feared for your personal safety doing the work that you do? So we do receive death threats and uh, kind of bizarre other threats, um, you know, fairly routinely in our office sometimes me personally, um, you, uh, you just go ahead and do the work, um, and, uh, and hope for the best and take, you know, some common sense precautions, um, about putting, for instance, your address out in public. Um, the short answer is yes. Um, and think there's a, uh, there is a paranoid strain to the gun rights movement. Um, and I think that's, gotten worse in recent years and been deliberately inflamed both by our president um, and the far right and by the NRA that says, you know, essentially that, you know, it, it starts by simply mischaracterizing our efforts. So for instance, when we wrote and advocated for a bill that would require a background check on ammunition purchases, it was described in every press release as an ammo ban. So already you're inflaming people to say that, you know, what's being passed into law and advocated for is something that's much more radical than, than what we're proposing. Um, and then, it's, and then the language that's used is dehumanizing and full of, uh, you know, intended to stoke fear. And unfortunately I think it's pretty cynical. It's, uh, it's a vehicle for making and raising money for the gun industry and gun rights activism. Um, because it, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of money. If you, if people think that, uh, well, I guess I'll rephrase that and say that, you know, the gun industry does really well when people think that guns are about to be banned and go out and, go out and buy a bunch. Um, and the gun rights lobby does really well when they think that their right to go out and buy a gun and, and buy ammunition is about to end as well. Um, so unfortunately, I think it comes down to cynical, you know, and they cynically want money. <laughs> they want to uh, to sell their, their lethal products and, and continue to justify uh, their activities because it's actually pr turns out pretty hard to raise money for an organization that opposes something that more than 90% of Americans support. Um, so they, they, they essentially distort what the, where the policy goals are and, um, and inflame people. So this, this is a long way of saying that, um, we do face, we do face, I think, credible threats of violence. Um, and unfortunately I think that is not unrelated to, um, the rhetoric that's used, um, by the activists on the other side. And so what led you to this work? I, I assume that there are many other um, easier options with your Stanford law degree than the, than the work you've chosen 
to do here? What, what, what you brought you to this? I think it was a variety of things. Uh, so, you know, as I mentioned before, I was working on veterans suicide policy before and just saw the, the folks I was working with that had survived suicide attempts were simply the ones that were fortunate enough not to use a firearm to attempt suicide. Um, all their members of their, their unit and their, uh, at their base that had used firearms had died. Um, I also had a good friend who lost her brother, uh, to gun violence, to street violence. Um, and that really woke me up. I had grown up in, in rural areas, um, where, you know, guns were just, you know, part of the culture, um, for, for a long time and hadn't really thought a lot about the ways that we had chosen as a country. Uh, made deliberate policy choices um, to make products designed to take human life um, immediately available upon demand to essentially anyone. Um, and I started learning more and more about the ways that that impacted people like my friend, like uh, like the, the service members I was working with um, or that I would never have the chance to work with because they had died. Um, and I learned a lot and I was shocked to learn, um, you know, essentially how, how enormous the, the problem is. Um, the fact that well over a million Americans have been shot in the last decade um, should be a wake-up call. Um, and I, I see it as something that we can make a lot of progress on as a country. Um, you know, sometimes we, there's so many different policies and thrown around and the debate can sound so contentious. But when we zoom out, what we're talking about is so modest um, and so obvious, I think, that we as a country have made choices to make it really easy to acquire weapons designed to kill. Um, and, and so we can really meaningfully move the needle and save human lives, um, and, and, and prevent a lot of, of human tragedy, um, by enacting some, some, some pretty modest measures. Um, so that's what motivated me. That's what brought me to this, to this work. Um, and it keeps me going. And so are there some state level initiatives that this year we should keep an eye on either because they're particularly innovative or perhaps there's, um, something being pushed um, in a uh, perhaps politically unlikely state uh, in which it may be enacted? So it's pretty early in the session. So I'm going to um, just be able to predict um, based on what we've heard and what, what we think is likely to occur is um, I think a lot of states are going to be, including Colorado, are going to be um, passing extreme risk protection order laws. Um, those are sometimes called red flag laws. Um, that allow a, a household member or law enforcement officer who sees serious warning signs of violence uh, to see something and say something and act in those emergency situations through a judge to remove firearms from the crisis situation. Um, eight states passed those laws last year um, after Parkland, and the majority of those bills were signed into law by Republican governors um, in some unlikely places. Um, and so that's something that I think is, is just going to be spreading uh, from there, part of the conversation in a lot of state houses, um, including those where most other gun safety bills may be, uh, unfortunately, dead on arrival. Um, other areas where I think there's some unlikely progress to be made um, are in prohibition for domestic abusers and hate crime offenders. Um, we have more states looking to pass universal background check laws. Um, and I think another area where a lot of states need to and are finally starting to take a look at how they can improve is in investing in violence intervention strategies and programs. Um, I think one important example of those is our hospital-based violence intervention programs. Um, that for instance, you know, 80% of people who are shot in this country by someone else survive. Um, they're sent to the hospital, they're patched up, 
through the marvels of modern medicine and then sent right back into the community in the same circumstances um, that got them shot in the first place. Um, we know from statistics and studies that they are vastly more likely to be shot again um, and unsurprisingly to be involved in retaliatory violence. So if, uh, if we can connect them in that moment, in that golden moment at the hospital of intervention, um, the way you would after a heart attack, connect a heart attack patient to maybe a nutritionist or someone to, to counsel them on diet and, and life change that could reduce their um, incidence of, of another heart attack. Um, if we can invest in strategies that, that uh, connect those people with counselors, peer coaches, uh, mediators, uh, mental health professionals, um, and needed social services, uh, those programs have shown remarkable success in reducing the likelihood that those people will be involved in retaliatory violence or re-injured. Um, and there's a lot of funding available for them. It's just not going to them. Um, and so we need a lot more advocacy and we're seeing a lot more states start to look at these funding streams and the way that they're spending dollars to make gun violence less likely. What do you think is a, a reasonable measure of overall success that we can possibly achieve within the next decade on this issue? You know, it's going to depend a lot on, on where our political leaders are. It's also going to depend, you know, on a lot of factors that are, um, in some ways not related to the kind of the gun safety reform laws that we often talk about. But, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, in recent years, there were significant spikes in, in violence, um, in a number of cities, um, that, often followed breakdowns in trust between police and communities. Um, you know, I think a, a great example is a study that found that after a high profile incidence of police brutality in Milwaukee, 911 calls, uh, to reporting crimes to law enforcement plummeted. Um, the city received 22,000 fewer calls than expected in a normal year reporting crimes. Um, so we see that this, this is my way of saying that it takes a lot to make meaningful reductions happen. Um, and it, and it's, it can be done. What it requires is gun safety reforms enacted. It requires policing reforms to regain the trust of the communities that are most likely to use, um, firearms for violence, um, meaningful interventions to educate the public about the risk of firearms, um, and suicide. What we've seen, um, some states be able to do pretty quickly is, is remarkable. Um, you know, this is a longer term that, uh, than you're talking about, but in the 25 years that my organization has been around, California has gone from one of the most violent states in the nation to the, one of the safest. Uh, we went from the third highest homicide rate to the 25th, um, and eighth lowest overall rate of gun deaths. Um, I think we should start with shorter term goals, five years, 10 years, um, to make really significant reductions. Um, New York and Massachusetts have probably been the, the, most impressive states of the last uh, half decade. Um, they've cut their gun homicide rates within that time um, by over a quarter um, by enacting some of the nation's strongest gun safety laws and also pairing those with significant, meaningful, and sustained investments in violence intervention strategies. Um, and we've seen even larger reductions in violence in those states among youth. So this is, again, my long way of saying that really meaningful progress can happen. Um, New York and Massachusetts are great examples of what can happen in a span of five or six years. Um, California is an example of what can be transformed over a generation. Um, and then there's also other warning signs about cities like Milwaukee, about what can happen to, uh, 
to go in the, on the other direction. Um, when states weaken their gun laws or when incidents on the ground make, uh, make violence much more likely. Ari Freilich, keep doing the work you're doing. You're saving lives. I'm glad you're doing it. And thank you for being with us on Wooden Teeth. It's been great talking to you, Jake. Thanks. All right. That was my conversation with Ari Freilich. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, looking ahead, we're going to have a new type of episode we're going to roll out here on Wooden Teeth. I'll save the details for later, but stay tuned. Also, on the last outro, on the last uh, pod, I mentioned that I got braces and that I would attempt to wear them perhaps in a future episode of the pod. So I didn't wear them for the interview with Ari. I did wear them for the intro and now the outro. Hopefully you understand me and you're not laughing too hard at how I slur my S's, but I'll keep working on it. You can give me feedback. All right. Thanks for listening.